Amen. 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 Okay, so I need to give you a little bit of a health warning this morning to the passage that we're going to uh, be working through. We're going through Galatians uh, bit by bit. As I have studied Galatians more uh, over the last uh, few weeks, I'm realizing not only could we spend certainly most of our year up until June in Galatians, it is so, so meaty. It is so much teaching in this that we could happily, I could happily camp out in this for the next few years. We're not, uh, but it does mean that we have to go quite quickly through some passages. So that's what we're going to do uh, today. But we're going to camp out on one particular verse that I believe is a, a word from the Lord for us as a church. But I, here's the health warning. We're going to do some, this isn't my term, but I think it fits. We're going to do some soul surgery this morning. It's going to be, it's going to be tough for a bit. But, it, we're, but we're going to put you back together, and it's going to be good at the end. So just hold on, because the reality is, is if we commit, and, and, and this is important, if we commit as a church, and I commit as a preacher and pastor to work through a book of the Bible, there are going to be verses that make us feel uncomfortable. Otherwise, I would be just choosing things that, that are just nice and make you feel great all the time. Now, the good thing is, is every verse, every passage speaks of Jesus, and Jesus will always make you feel great and will encourage you. But there are times when you have to kind of take a look at ourselves in order to get there. So that is one of uh, the message this morning. So just hold on with me, because there's going to be, wow, that's pretty tough to hear. But I also want to assure you that whatever I preach, I've worked through myself in prayer and journaling in the week, a couple of weeks before. This is a journey that we're all on, and, we, and, it, and it's all, uh, all together as a church family, uh, as, as uh, partners, as spouses, as individuals. So uh, it's going to be good. So we've moved from Galatians chapter 1 into Galatians chapter 2, and the book of Galatians, very, very briefly, is Paul writing to a church or a group of churches that are starting to drift and stray away from the gospel. And so what he's done in chapter 1 is he's given reason as to why they should listen to him, and he's reminded us of what the gospel is. And so we finished off by really focusing on the beautiful truth that God has a strategy for the unsavable. That Paul is really, if you look at his resume, it was filled with hatred and murder and persecution and, and, and arrogance and self-righteousness and pride. Whatever we put our lives up against Paul, Paul trumps. Paul wins when it comes to being a long way from God. And yet, it says, we read it in verse 4, uh, sorry, uh, in last week's, uh, or the week before, uh, sermon that but when God God breaks in God brings change and transformation and radically changes his life so that's where we kind of left it in Galatians chapter one now we move into Galatians chapter two and Paul then starts to describe some of the interactions that he's having and so I want to jump in from verse one and just take a few pauses as we go before we do that youth and young adults in the room and by young adults I mean anybody up to the age of 45 amen amen Um, This is a very, very relevant sermon for you. In the culture that you're in, there's going to be some heavy, I need to think about that. And I'm going to say some stuff, and I'm hoping that you write it down in your Galatians journals, um, to actually reflect on later. So this is pretty, gets pretty thick for a while, but it's very, very relevant. And so I'm going to do my best to make it uh, as simple as possible. All right. So, verse 1. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then, 
This is Paul speaking. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them. Let's just pause there for a second. So Paul is going to Jerusalem, not because he's been summoned, but because he's received a revelation from Jesus. God is still in the business of speaking. We are not necessarily in the business of listening all the time, but God speaks all the time, all the time. Um, we just need to lean in and position ourselves to hear from him. And sometimes we're so distracted, we don't actually get to do that. Yesterday, Sarah and I went for a walk around our neighborhood, and it's just stunning in Kettle Valley right now, as I'm sure it is in other parts of the city. The trees are just, the colors are unbelievable. And I just stopped and looked at this one orangey, red, beautiful tree. And I, and I just was like, Lord, thank you for your creativity. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for the way that you communicate your love and joy and mercy to us. Through creation, you see, God speaks to us through a leaf, <laughs> you know? And so it's very important to recognize that Paul is receiving a revelation here. Now, he's taking two people with him, Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas is a Jew. Titus is not, for reasons that we know later on, because Titus, actually, bless him, is well known for one thing that this verse really highlights, is that he wasn't circumcised. Now, I kind of feel sorry for Titus that that is his kind of legacy that we read about in Galatians, that he was the one that wasn't circumcised. Aren't you grateful that those kind of details aren't? publicly put out for thousands of years, um, but that, that was Titus's lot, and he had it, not Titus the good-looking, or Titus the handsome, or Titus the, the you know, the funny, or the, the suave, no, uncircumcised, thank you, Titus, along with me, there's a reason why, because Barnabas is Jewish, Titus is not a Jew, he's a Gentile, Now, that's important in this context because you need to understand the way that Jews see Gentiles very unfavorably. They don't see them outside of Jesus as being part of God's family. So Paul is bringing these two people really as an example of the way that the gospel can radically change everybody. It's very important. And he set them before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential. Who were those people? This is John, James, Peter. They're the, they're the kind of heavyweight pro- apostles of the time. Okay? The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So he's explaining to John, Peter, and James what the gospel is that he's preaching to the Gentiles. And as proof of the power and transformational nature of the gospel, here's Titus and Barnabas. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. He's like, look, look am I getting this right? Am I preaching the gospel appropriately? Is this the message? So he wants to make sure that he is correct. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Wow. That's quite the way to, to like really highlight Titus. Why, why is he doing that? Why is he saying even that he was not forced to be circumcised? Well, we find out a little bit more in verse 4. Yet... Because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into slavery. So why is he bringing Titus? He's bringing Titus because Titus is a Greek. He's not Jewish. He's not a Jewish Christian. He's a Gentile Christian. And Paul is saying we've not forced him, praise the Lord, to be circumcised. Why does he highlight that? Because there's brothers, false brothers have been secretly coming in and declaring and saying something very, very pertinent to the time, and it's this. Jesus is great, but you also need to follow some of the law, the Jewish law, 
that we need to follow circumcision especially and dietary laws. If you really want to be accepted, if you really want to be pure before God, if you really, really want to have life and life to the full, Jesus is awesome, but you also need this other stuff. And Paul is railing against this in in, in Galatians. He's like, no, that is not the case. Because look, Titus was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not making him get circumcised. We are not making people eat the diets that the Jews are. And yet he's still proof that the gospel works. You see, the Jews believed passionately. It wasn't just an add-on belief. They believed wholeheartedly that their whole life should be focused on, in particular, 613 laws that you find in the Old Testament. The Levitical law, the, the laws, the ceremonial laws, there's dietary laws, there's moral laws, there's also civic laws, there's all sorts of laws, all summed up with 613 of them that you can read that, by the way, you will find Christians quoting to back up beliefs that aren't found in the New Testament. We'll talk more about that next week. But these laws were there for a specific reason. They were there because they wanted to keep the Ten Commandments, the law of God. So you've got the law of God, and then you've got these 613 commandments that help you fulfill that law. Does that make sense? It's really important that we we understand that. So you've got the Ten Commandments, God's law, and 613 laws, of which circumcision, dietary laws, ceremonial, moral, civic laws, all were part of the 613. And the Jewish nation at that time were passionate about following these laws. If you do not follow them, you will not be accepted. If you don't follow these laws, you will not get into the presence of God because you will not fulfill these Ten Commandments. Actually, in Galatians chapter 3, we're going to find out why we have the law, the, the Ten Commandments. Paul says that really those Ten Commandments are not there to save us like the Jews believed, but actually there to highlight our sin, to define our need, to show that we cannot fulfill these laws and point us to Jesus. That's what we're going to find out in Galatians chapter 3. It, it defines our sin and, and it shows us our deep need. The, so I was, I was trying to think about how to best illustrate this to you. So um, it was a bit of a scramble this morning, but I, we... We, we had a couple of problems, but we managed to find, thanks to Zoe, this. Okay. So I want you to imagine for a second that this, uh, these are the, this is the Ten Commandments. Okay, so some of you are already looking at yourselves. That's fine. There you go, just to be equal. All right. Some of you are like, oh, no, don't point that to me. And if I really wanted to be annoying, I could do that. But that's just a little bit of fun on my side. So make sure you're listening. Boyd's not listening. Um, Okay, so here are the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments, imagine this is a perfect mirror. Now, I've been told that we have a mirror in our our house that some friends of ours visited many years ago, and then she went, oh, I love your mirror. I went, thank you, Ikea special, you know, antique from Ikea. She went, no, she says it's flattering. Is it? She says, yeah, it's slimming. Is it? Apparently, we have a slimming mirror in our house, because she said that it just makes you look slightly slimmer. So guess what? We won't be getting rid of that mirror. We're keeping that mirror. But imagine this is a perfect mirror. Okay, and as you look at yourself in this mirror, it's great looking at yourself from a distance. But I don't know how many of you, I'm, sh- I, I'm sure that many of you gaze long and hard in the mirror every morning. I don't want to make any assumptions. But like, the closer you get to the mirror, 
the more uncomfortable it gets. Okay, you actually, actually, I don't really want, oh, Ollie's all in there. I don't really want to look that closely because you start seeing some of the faults. You start seeing the things from a distance that actually I look pretty damn good from over there. But the closer you get, the more uncomfortable it gets because suddenly you're faced with the true reality of the, of, I'm not saying because you, you're lovely. I'll do Jared. The true reality of who, oh, hang on, John Casorso. The true reality of who you are is shown up by this mirror. Now, this mirror cannot save you. It can't get rid of the scars and the the blackheads and the zits, as we'd call them in Britain, and the little blemishes and the problems. It can't do it. All it does is highlight them to you. Now, from a distance, we can kind of ignore it, but the closer you get to it, the more real it becomes. So we had a dear friend in, in Britain called Joy, and Joy was uh, a lovely, somewhat elderly lady, and, uh, and she, was, she, was a, she was a joy to have around. She had a tremendous sense of humor. She was from Liverpool. So Liverpool didn't talk like that all the time, and it's really confusing. And you're like, what? You're sort of like, you're buch and wach and lightly buch. And she was really, really Liverpoolian. And, so, and they have a tremendous sense of humor as well. But Joy was in a supermarket one day, and I think I've, sh- I've shared this story before, but she, she glanced over and saw somebody that she thought that she knew. And, and after a period of time, she actually realized that she'd been scowling at herself in the mirror, thinking all the time, how rude is this person for scowling at me? Whereas actually she was scowling at herself because from a distance, you know, you can make that kind of mistake. But when you get really close up to a mirror, a mirror will show you all the faults. That is what... The commandments are like. They highlight our need. They show us a constant reminder that we fall short. Because if you look at the Ten Commandments or even the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount, you are presented with a life that is pretty amazing. The only person in history that has fulfilled the Ten Commandments perfectly and the Sermon on the Mount perfectly was Jesus. He lived the perfect life. You and I cannot live that life. We are incapable of it. But what the commandments do is they serve to highlight the issues. But the commandments cannot save you. See, the Jews believed that by following the commandments, they would actually be saved. And Paul is going, no, that is not true. You cannot be saved by the manner of your life. They are a constant reminder of us falling short. But what has the Ten Commandments got to do with us? What has all this got to do with you and me in Kelowna in 2019-2020? Massive, massive relevancy for this reason. We were all created, the Bible says, in the image of God. The term, if you want to impress your friends or get a nice tattoo, back to the Levitical law, um, Imago Dei. It's the image of God, the characteristic of God, the personality of God. We have a fingerprint of God on our life. There is this beauty that is inside of us that comes directly from God. Ecclesiastes expresses it in this way, a beautiful verse. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity into the human heart. I quote this all the time because as a preacher, this is my fail-safe. Because I don't have to convince people that there is eternity because I know that I know that I know that every person knows that there's more than just the present now because it's in their heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. See, he's saying, look, you're getting a glimpse. You're getting a glimpse on the inside of you that there's something more. That's the image of God. And, and so 
When I say that we all have this, this constant reminder that we're falling short, we actually have an internal reminder that's constantly at work telling us that we are falling short. And I believe as a Christian, and as a pastor, and as a preacher, that that constant reminder that is on the inside is like a mirror, constantly reminding us that you're not quite getting there. We're not quite getting there. Those reminders can come from the outside by what we look at and we covet and we see. I wish I had that or I wish it was like them or I wish, I wish, I wish. Or it's just internal angst. Every one of us feels that. And it's like a mirror. And sometimes we get really, really close to it. And it gets very, very real and panicky and anxiety-filled. And we get anxious and we feel that tension and and depending on what we're doing in life, that can be life-defining and, and it can create huge problems, huge challenges, because we have this internal sense that there is something more. One of my favorite books, and I highly recommend that you read it, is The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Now, if you were to put me and C.S. Lewis together theologically, there's lots of ways that we miss, but there are so many wonderful ways in which we align. And, and one of his, because he was such a brilliant scholar, he was able to put into words so much of what's kind of going on inside here. And so one of the passages in The Way of Glory is, uh, this is why you just, you just need to read and reread and reread. Listen to this. Talking about what we have inside of us, this eternity. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them, I should say. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. Okay, what's he saying here? What he's saying is, especially that last sentence, the echo of a tune we have not heard. It's like we had the privilege once early on in our marriage of living in a house, a semi-detached, where the person next door really liked to play loud music. Drove me nuts. Drove me insane. And you couldn't quite get what the tune was, but you knew it was there. And I'm sure you're like, what? What is that? What is that tune? That's what he's talking about. It's that sense that there's something more that art and beauty reveal, creation reveals, but we can't actually quite get to it. We just know that it's there. We can't tune into it. And that's why he said that the tune we've not yet heard, news from a country we've not yet visited, that we hear about, but we've not actually experienced yet. Every one of us has this inside of us, this eternity in our heart. We know that there's more and we try and grasp it. We look for it. We seek for it, always feeling like we're still a distance away from it. It doesn't matter what you drive or what house you have or your partner, your children or your success or or whatever it might be. There's still that sense of something more. There's still a mirror inside of us that tells us you're not quite making it. It's an ever present sense of more is a constant reminder that we fall short. So what we do is we strive to follow laws to perfect ourselves. Just like the Jews. 
We have this mirror, this sense of more, this sense of perfection. And what we do, just like the Jews, is we follow these laws in order to gain for it. Now, you might go, hang on, I don't follow any laws. We live in a culture of relative truth. I can do what I want. Actually, that's just not true. We live in a culture that has intense numbers. So, young people, listen to this. You need to be very careful about the, the laws that are underneath our culture that are constantly calling you to follow them, that by following them, you will attain the thing that you know that you've been wired for, the happiness, the joy, the fulfillment, the acceptance. What am I talking about? This is where it gets a bit thick. What, what I'm talking about is this. There's rules and laws that are presented to you from external sources that say you must be this way. You must think this way. You must dress this way. You must listen to this. You must have children, parents, that look and see and be this way. You must have a job that has to be this way. You must listen to this music. Don't listen to this music. Go here. Don't go there. Don't do this. Do this. You must think the way that we think. Believe what we believe. Otherwise, we will reject you. And you will never attain that which you know is out there to be had. And then you can break those laws up. You've got to look this way, live this way, bring your kids up this way, succeed in this way, believe this, accept this, and if you don't accept it, we're going to reject you. And the irony is this. Our culture lays on top of that this idea that we're so inclusive while silently being the most exclusive culture out there. Or we accept all of you as long as you believe what we believe. And then we'll accuse Christians of being too exclusive makes no sense. And so we have all these laws. You've got to be, think, look, act, uh, listen to, watch. And you go to school, you go to university, you go to uh, different uh, areas of our culture. These things are just reinforced. You've got to be like us. They're laws laid down by our culture that you must fulfill in order to gain that which we know we should be. And there's far more than 613. Far more. There's layer upon layer upon layer of rules. And so that's why Paul says, that's what we're told, that our life plus these cultural laws will equal everything. And, and those of us who aren't just youth and young adults, this is rife in our lives too. Oh, especially through coveting. Oh, they have that. I need that in order for my life to be everything. If I can get that, then I will have the perfection, the eternity that I know that I've been created for. Now we don't, we don't mentally go through this process, but we live it out. My kids are got to be this way. My kids are got to go to this school. I've got to have that car. I've got to have that gadget. I've got to have these clothes. I've got to have those looks. I've got to have that fitness. I've got to have this holiday. I've got to have this. I've got to have this. I've got to have this. They're law upon law upon law upon law. And what does Paul say? It leads to slavery, not freedom. Now, let's let that word sit for a second. That is a very culturally... Uh, energetic word, slavery. Paul is saying if you are trying to add things to your life in order to gain that which you were created for, you will only get slavery. He says this, Jesus plus anything is nothing but slavery. Wow. Slavery. And we know this to be true experientially. That if you try and add things constantly to your life, then it results in slavery. Because, because there's always somebody, somebody faster, richer, better looking, and more successful than you. And so the, 
the standard constantly shifts higher and higher and higher and higher. And all it does is it brings slavery to you and your thinking and your life. I've got to have. And if I don't have, I'm discontent. And so we get this, this cycle of striving for more, never attaining, feeling shame and guilt because we're not there, working harder, constant cycle, and ultimately it's crippling, stress-filled, and death. And we know that to be true by the amount of time that people spend on things thinking that that thing somehow is the answer to their life. And here's what we do is we get really good at going, uh, spotting that in other people's lives, but really poor at spotting it in our own lives. (laughs) Oh, man, they are so obsessed with their biceps. Man, if they could just spend less time on their biceps and a little bit more time on whatever, then they would really be having life. That's just crazy. Oh, they're so obsessed with. They're so focused on their kids. Man, lie, their kids are, you know, and they're just the best at everything, aren't they, apparently. Look at their Instagram thing. And we're really good at seeing it in other people, really, really bad at seeing it in our own lives. Really really bad. There's always somebody better, faster, prettier, fitter, happier, richer. What was it that Rockefeller said when he was asked how much money is enough? He replied, just a little bit more. The richest man on earth at that time, just a little bit more. Then it'll be enough. That's slavery. What are you under slavery from? Money. Is money a bad thing? No. Being a slave of it is Is being fit a bad thing? No. Is having kids a bad thing? Obviously not. They're wonderful. Is having a great marriage a bad thing? No. A good education? No. A good friends? You know, fill in the gap. None of these things are bad. But as soon as we become slaves to them, as soon as we see them as the answer, then it becomes enslaving because you get caught in this cycle. I've got to have. I've got to have. And that's what these Jews, these false teachers were saying. You've got Jesus plus the ceremonial law will give you life. And Paul is like, no, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Okay. So let's just pull this out a little bit. In Britain, we went to, we did a little mini tour in the summer and uh, we thought it'd be fun to show the boys some of the houses we used to live in as we went through the housing market and the house that we had before we came here was a church manse and a church manse basically is a it used to be tradition that the church would give the pastor a house I think that's a tradition we should reclaim I think that would be that'd be wonderful and I get to choose the house before any of you going oh yeah I'll give you a house you have that carriage house that's half fixed at the back of our yard, right, Pete? Um, so, so this is so we actually managed to buy an old church manse, and this was our church manse, and that's uh, Sarah always on the phone. Oh my goodness! No, it just uh, so that's our church house. Isn't that a nice house? When we first saw that, we were like, I know it was massive. It was like mansion. Trust me, it 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 was rubbish inside. Um. So we went to this house, and it was, for some reason, ridiculously cheap. Like, we can afford it cheap. Why? So we went in, and, uh, and we went inside. And if you look really carefully, just above the white door, you can see a bit of a crack. You see that? Mortared in by yours truly. Look how I, look how I matched the mortar, by the way. I think that's just a thing of beauty. That's like just watching... Um, like those, those kind of antique restoration things. So, so that was the crack. So we went in, and the place was rubbish. It was trashed. It was awful. 
We went around and we're like, well, a bit of pain. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And we're always thinking maybe it'll be a good investment. And then we went upstairs and we found that that crack actually ran through the length of the house horizontally. Like, and I could put my hand in it. Hmm. So I looked at it and I said, Sarah, now I know why the house is so cheap. Like really cheap. And so I prayed. And I said, Lord, is that crack going to be a problem? And I really felt God say, no. Everything visually, yes. You put your hand in it, and it's brick. None of this, none of this wood nonsense. Proper brick wall right down the center of the house, like hand in it. So I had a friend called Chris. I still have a friend called Chris. He's the guy that I baptized in the summer and almost drowned. Do you remember that picture, those of you who saw on social media? It's great. You should go and have a look. It's wonderful. But Chris became a Christian recently and, and uh, is a very close friends of ours, Chris and Emma. And Chris is a surveyor and a building surveyor. This is what he does. He goes around houses and he assesses houses, especially not just for home buyer kind of surveys, but for the banks and and everything else. So this is doing, I'm sure he's going to listen. So shout out to you, Chris. He came in and I paid him with a flat of beer. It's my kind of friend. There you go. And so he came in and and I went up and he looked at the crack and I said, so, and he gave me all sorts of different information. And and at the end of the day, yeah, 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 yeah. Is it going to be a problem? And I remember him saying this to me. He said, Glenn, have you ever seen a house fall down? And I said, no. He said, it's going to be fine. There's nothing that you can't fix. You can fix it. It just depends on how much money it's going to cost you. And he said, and this crack is not a problem. And he explained why. He said, just fill it in. It, it won't reappear. And jumping ahead, he was right. Absolutely right. We bought the house. And, um, and we, did, we did well out of it at the end, which enabled us actually to be able to get over to Canada later on. So anyway, here's what I'm saying. Chris, by his own admittance, is not very good at DIY. In fact, he just point refuses to do it, much to my amusement. He's like, no, I, I'll go and tell you what you need to do. I'm not going to come and do it for you. He said, well, get somebody else to do that. And I admire that about him. But really, this is what life is like. See, this building, this beautiful building has been broken, which, by the way, this is the church that that, ch- that house was connected to, and it's really overgrown and falling apart. It's really sad, actually, because that was quite... Um, I, I, I preached in that church, and now... Now, look, that's what happens when you get Pastor Glenn's preach. Um, he, he, he's, you see, what we've got is this perfect house, this mirror. It's broken. And our life and everything we see points out the cracks. But we, listen, have no ability to do anything about the cracks other than cover them up and hope they don't reappear. But they do. Because the crack itself is still there. We just cover it up. We cover it up with the thing that we fill in the gap with. We cover it up with fitness or success or good kids or social media. We we cover it up, but the crack is still there. It's still a problem. It's still an issue. It's still going to shift. It's going to create problems in the future if it's not causing problems now. But as long as we have this facade, then we feel like we're okay, whereas we're actually cracking up, literally inside. And we're hoping that our efforts will be enough to heal us and make us acceptable. But Paul says, no, the law, the the thing that's showing you the perfection highlights the cracks, but it cannot save the crack. It would be like the house helping itself. It's not going to do that. But he says the gospel heals 
The gospel, Jesus Christ is the one that comes and covers up the cracks. In fact, it says it'll give you a new house that you don't need to worry about just filling things in. It will be completely new, a new creation, a new start. So in Jesus, the echo of something better, that thing that we hear, the thing that we sense, the future, the more, actually becomes a reality and becomes life itself. So we're not straining to get it. We already have it living inside of us. So that gap that we're trying to fill is actually, it's nonsense. All it's going to do is enslave you because it's Jesus plus that's it. It's beautifully simple. And that's why Jesus himself said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This sense of constant renewal and rebirth and joy and peace and even in difficulties and challenges, that can be our testimony. Is that though your experience? Is it your freedom or is it that you are still trying to find that freedom by filling in the gap? Is Jesus enough for you? Bearing in mind that the person that we're reading about, Paul, is actually someone who spent a lot of time being beaten, whipped, shipwrecked twice, spent a night and a day at sea. He'd been left for dead countless times, imprisoned for years, and yet he still says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That What do you do with a guy like that? He's so buoyant, he's so filled with joy that there's nothing, you can't push the guy down. That's one of the real uh, truths of what joy means in the scriptures. One of the root words means buoyancy. You get like, man, will you stay down? No, it comes up. So it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, what the challenges are, what the troubles are, what the tension, the stress, and the promises, you will get them. There's a buoyancy in your life. Where do you get that from? Do you get it from filling in the gap? Do you get it from the better job, the better place, the better travel, the better missus, the better husband, the better, better, better? No, it comes from Jesus. That's why Paul says Jesus Christ is freedom. Everything else is slavery. It's so important that we leave this place understanding that Jesus is the one that is the root of the living water. Nothing else. And friends, just to take a breath. We know that to be true. Think of all the things that you have chased after that actually haven't brought you that thing that deep down inside in your heart you've sensed for. That we might seek after more possessions. We want these people in our lives. If we can just get that person or just get those people into my life. If I can just be part of that group. If we can just get to be that person, maybe that promotion, maybe that whatever that might be, better mum, better dad, better brother, better sister, better friend. If I can just be that person, then that will fill in my gap. If I can just become more popular. Do you know the new American slash Canadian dream is popularity? It's true. Because if you get popularity, the law tells you, if you get popularity, you will get people, power, possessions. They'll all come as a result of popularity. It's the influence culture. It's massive. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably a good thing. But uh, there's a lot of people who know exactly what I'm talking about. You get popularity, everything else follows. It's a lie. It's a Jesus plus lie and Christian friends, we buy into that too. That we have Jesus, just like Galatian church, and yet we have this idea that I've got to add to it. Got to add to it. 
And Jesus and God in the scriptures is really vehement about his response to this. Son of man, these men have taken, or women have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? He's talking about his people who have said, God is not enough. I need this as well. And that this as well has become an idol to them. And they're holding it tight. So much so that God says, I won't even listen to them. And that saddens me as a pastor because as I'm walking around with my, with my wife or whoever else is joining us, here's what I'm praying, that renewal and revival will start here because if it starts here, then evangelism and outreach take care of themselves. If we make it just Jesus plus and that's it, without adding everything else to our lives, without being enslaved to everything else, then our life will naturally show people the joy and the buoyancy that they desperately need. I wouldn't need to run classes and everything. It'll just come out of you. But we get caught and we start idolizing. We start saying, God, you can have whatever, but you can't have this. I've preached about this before. But it's so important in our culture. Is what we do is we, is we say to God, okay, we've got two hands. And we say, okay, God, you're in this hand and my life is in this hand. And what we verbally communicate is this is a non-negotiable. I'm not letting go of this. And this is a negotiable. I, I, I'm just holding that with an open hand. But these slowly can become idols and we start doing that with God. And this is taking idols into our heart and then this starts to enslave us. And this are good things. This is children and money and business and friendships and relationships. These are all good things. But the second we close our hand around and say, God, you can have anything you want, but you can't have this, we stop connecting with God. And then it gets worse. We'll just drop God because I've got this. I've got, I've got what I've been wanting for a while, all at the same time knowing that this doesn't actually bring freedom. What we've actually dropped is the thing that brings freedom. And as a church, I pray that renewal and revival will come into our lives where we actually swap. Where this is Jesus plus. These are beautiful. All they do is give me an ability to make much of this. And we hold it in an open hand. I'm going to tell you, that's freedom. That's slavery. Freedom, slavery. Because this enslaves you. This brings you freedom. That's what we need to strain for. So that is why Paul said in Galatians verse 5, to them we did not yield. Wow. That has spoken to me so strongly this last week. I will not yield. I will not. I will not let go of this. I will discipline myself and dedicate myself because the joy and the freedom that comes from having it this way is far better than having it this way. And so, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The truth of the gospel, Jesus, that's all you need. That's all you need. And that comes by preaching the gospel to us ourselves, by reading about it, worshiping it, uh, worshiping it out here, uh, praying it through, getting involved in biblical community. We start filling our lives with the gospel. We're going to talk more about this next week, but this is where it comes. And so then Paul, as we close this up, says this in verse 7 through to 10. So he said, I'm not going to yield. I'm going to fight for this. On the contrary, when I saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So he's saying, look, Peter, you're called to the Jews. I'm called to the Gentiles. All good. 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Like Jesus called him to the Jews, Jesus called me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. Come back to that. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. How do we live this out? As we come to communion in a couple of minutes and as we focus on what Jesus Christ has done for us, how is it that that brings freedom? And we're going to really blow this apart next week. What I've done is I've highlighted what enslaves us. This is what brings us everyday freedom. Grace that was given to me, entrusted with the gospel. What Paul is starting to do in Galatians is he starts opening this beautiful and glorious door towards the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ in me and I am in Christ. He says in Galatians 2 verse 4, our freedom that we have in in Christ Jesus And then in Galatians 2.20, the verse that I've encouraged you all to learn. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. That Christ is in you comes the promise that if you believe in Jesus, if you submit your life to him, if you ask for forgiveness and bring your life to him and confess that he is Lord, then you are given promise. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are righteous. You are accepted. You are loved. You are brought into the family that you no longer need to strive because that which you are looking for, the echo becomes reality. That is given to you. That is your promise. And as we struggle sometimes through life, that that promise is enough that when you're feeling defeated, when you're feeling shame-filled, when you're feeling ensnared, the promise of who you are in Christ Jesus shines forth. You have that. But then it doesn't stop there. Because not only does the work of Jesus Christ set you free and then allow you to live in freedom, it also fills you with power. Christ in you. So that when Satan comes knocking, and he will, and tries to remind you of what a terrible sinner you are, you can actually remind him, in Christ I am forgiven, and Christ living in me allows me the power and the strength to resist him and the tactics that he comes against you with very practical in the day which is why I say we should preach the gospel to ourselves and it means that rather than turning away from God you can turn towards Christ so what does that look like that's where it becomes challenging because if you want to know you know how I said it's easy to see what other people are idolizing and not easy for yourself. Here's a question, a couple of questions for you to ask yourself. As you come to the communion table, this is a point of confession. If you want to know what it is that you maybe are filling the gap with, Jesus plus, what is that for you? Ask yourself this. What, what makes you most anxious about? Constantine actually presented this question hundreds of years ago that if it was taken away, it would bring extreme anxiety to you. What, what are you most anxious about keeping and having? That even just the thought of not having that brings panic to you. 
And that can be a possession, it can be a relationship, it can be a position, it can be a, 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 an acceptance, it can be uh, influence, it can be anything. That if, I, if I'm no longer influential, then I'm nothing. What is that for you? And then a second question would be, what is it that your mind goes towards when you're not thinking about anything else? What do you just naturally start drifting towards mentally? What's consuming your mind, in other words? That is a clue, an indication of perhaps you are filling your life up with something other than Jesus. And ultimately, that thing could enslave you. Because if it's a person, they'll let you down. Well, they can. If it's a possession, that can be taken away. If it's popularity, that too can be taken away. If it's power, that too can be taken away. It can let you down. If it's Jesus plus Jesus plus Jesus then that will never be taken away. And for some of you, you're camping out on the, if I could just get this. And my loving, gentle reminder is that the promise is it will only enslave you. But in Christ Jesus, there's freedom, there's power, there's promise. And we're going to break that apart now in the next few weeks because that's the door that Paul has opened to us. So you did well. That was a pretty pretty meaty sermon. Uh, and, And it... And it's well worth meditating on and thinking through those two questions. What do I get most anxious about? What do I need in my life in order to feel fulfilled? And as we come to the table in just a second, and worship team, you can come up. We're going to worship and we come to these elements, these, these symbols that Jesus himself gave to us and said, do this in remembrance of me. And, and as you take the bread, remember my body broken for you so that you could have the promise, so you could have the power. And my blood shed as a reminder that his blood was shed in sacrifice for my sin and my shame, that my broken, decaying cracks in my life applied to Jesus and died with him and his newness of life and freedom is given to me. That's what we do. We remember that. But the scripture says very clearly that if you are camping out on the plus part you are not worshipping Jesus as your Lord and as your friend as your saviour then you are not welcome this is the Bible not welcome to take the communion it forces us to make a decision now you can be a Christian and be struggling come take communion but if you've never come to that place where you've confessed with your mouth and declared with your life that Jesus is Lord, then now is the time to do that. Freedom can be yours. Freedom, power, promise in Christ Jesus, yours as a gift. Lord, I know for my friends and my brothers and sisters here that, Lord, we live in this tension. Our culture constantly communicating what we need and what we must be in order to find freedom. But Lord, I thank you that your creation itself communicates something deeper, more beautiful, more ultimate than that. There is freedom found in you, Jesus. And what a freedom it is, a buoyancy in life. We want that, Lord. And Lord, I thank you that 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 starts with us bowing our heads and Maybe closing our eyes and just thanking you for your death, for what you did on the cross. That, Lord, this bread and this wine represents 
everything. Your death, your resurrection, your life. That in you, Jesus, I can live the life that I was created to live. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray you would forgive us for the times that we have idolized and focused on the gap. But I need this. And Lord, I thank you that many of those things are good, wholesome, wonderful gifts that you have given to us. But forgive us, Lord, for the times where we worship them over you. And so, Lord, I pray now that by your spirit and by your power and by your own voice, that you would speak to us as a church just in these few minutes. And that, Lord, that you would bring to these and to my mind, to these wonderful people's minds, Lord, things that we have placed above you and make ultimate. That, Lord, we would find freedom even right now as we worship and praise you. Hallelujah. And Lord, I pray that renewal and revival would sweep through our lives, that our community and our city would experience it too. Hallelujah. So as we worship with the team, the way that we do it at the south is that the tables, and there's one at the back as well, get opened up, and, and that's a grand way of saying we take the napkins off. Um, and you can come and you can take um, a piece of bread and you can dip it into the, the juice and you can take it back and you can do it with your friends, with your partner. And do it by yourself and just quietly thank him for his death and his resurrection and freedom found in Jesus. And you can do that at any time that we sing and, and that's how we do it. So the song will start and you can come and go to the back if you prefer and uh, spend these few moments focusing on Jesus because he is so worthy for our attention to be fixed upon. Amen? Amen. Thank you guys.